0: Gary Rogers, welcome to the podcast and thank you very much for joining us. I suppose while most footballers have seen their usual schedules disrupted, as chairman of the PFAI, you're probably busier than ever. And just, it's an organization that many fans will have heard of, but they might not have a great deal of understanding of exactly what it is you do so could you tell us what the PFAI has been doing recently and what your normal mode of business would be?
1: Well, look, thanks very much for having me first of all and um, I suppose the PFAI everyone would be familiar with it, but what we do is obviously look after the players and, and make sure that you know the players are looked after and, and that has become I suppose a more complex business than it would have been over the past number of years. Previously it would have been just Sorting out players' raises and making sure the players got paid. But uh, now we've got a lot more services that you know we look after players in terms of mental health and education and stuff like that. So there's there's a lot more a lot more to it. Um, and I suppose with the way things have gone in the FEI re- recently, we have now had you know we more of a platform in order to input and um, I suppose the wants and the needs of the players. You know, with any future decisions because any decisions that are made you know, from on the FAI's behalf and the club's behalf on behalf of uh, effective players. So now we've kind of over the last couple of years we've have more of a platform now to uh, I suppose put our, our needs you know in the in the in the pot if you like um you know for decision making process that, that go on within the government body.
0: And I suppose outside the League of Ireland family, people might consider professional footballers to be a rather you know a pampered lot who can buy a ferrari a week with their premier league wages but for players in ireland it's it's a very different experience and even looking back on your own career although you've been very very successful as a player there's been these moments of precarity where where the rug has been pulled under you you know mid season because clubs have gotten into trouble and i suppose that's really where an organisation like the pfai is is has got to be you know stepping in yeah i
1: suppose i've always um been a' been a member of the PFAI since I started playing really in, in like really since two thousand and one or two um two thousand and one actually where I would have always been a member and I would have always seen you know that you know how the p f a i would help the players and and the need for for the union and that voice and so you know, sometimes players are not able to go and ask um you know their teammates or their manager about stuff that's going on within their club and and you know the pFI has that um has their ear and has their back and they're able to go and ask questions and find out well if that's is that being done right or is that the proper way to do things and, and then you will have that support from your union so that that's always been i've always been aware that you know you know the services of the pFI and obviously as you said yourself um look, I probably have experience of having to make them phone calls and ask them questions as well i suppose in my early days but even even with, even with there would have been times where if I remember going to um Going to Stockport on trial, and everyone was, was wishing me well because it was it was uh, kind of the different. They were hoping I'd go so that the club would have money to pay the wages the following week. So, you know, th- th- there's always been instances of that, and um, and even with Dublin City, then they went bust mid-season, and um, had problems in Galway as well. So, like I would have come across problems. I think most League of Ireland players would have come across issues, and um, generally financially uh, in the early days. And, um, you know, throughout their careers, there would have been certain issues at different clubs at different times. So, um, you know, I've always been, I always aware of, of the need for the PFI and have available services. And that's probably why I would have um, got involved uh, later in my career.
0: Currently, I suppose you're inundated with what is going on. Not not only does the PFI have its normal every day, every every season, I imagine you're called upon for a number of cases. But with the impact of COVID essentially shutting down football, we we've seen different effects throughout, I suppose, the strata of clubs. We saw that some clubs almost had to move within weeks to letting players go. Others have been able to continue to, to pay their players, so it must be a particularly stressful time for players uh, what, what generally has been the impact on our players in the league regarding the shutdown like how are they faring financially and also from the kind of physical and psychological point of view and as being a teammate who suddenly is isolated from all your colleagues uh, it must be a, it must be a kind of a a variety of negative effects on them. Yeah, I suppose if
1: you look at it, it affects teams differently. and As you know, all the teams in our league are run structurally different as well, and you've got a mix of amateur players, part-time players, and professional players. So that is, you know, difficult in itself. Um, Like, I suppose, you know, the government's COVID-19 payment has eased the kind of financial um, restraints or, you know, has eased it financially for now. And... you know, because most clubs have have availed of that, so that has been a help to clubs and to players. And um, you know, but essentially it is kicking the can down the road, and there could be more financial problems in um, in place. And we have kind of put together a fund to help players as well. And um, down, down the line, if if they're um, struggling financially, whether it be mortgages or rent or payments and stuff like that, so we are looking to kind of help players out. You have mentioned also the physical aspect of it. It's probably been the one thing that players, you know, are used to training and now it's obviously a different mode of training and where you're doing, you're doing strength and conditioning sessions on Zoom and, and whatever it may be. And, you know, you don't have that kind of camaraderie where where you would have the, the dressing environment, but we are like, I know from our own club that we do regular Zoom sessions where we're doing, we're doing, um, you know, tra- train remotely. So there is there is stuff like that still going on, and people are, are still training. And you also touch on mental health, which is a massive thing. And um, you know, and we do have services for our players. We have we have um, a brilliant lady called Mary larkin and she's you know our mental health expert. And players who members of the players union um, and have the access to her for meetings for for sessions. They may only need one or two sessions. It's maybe just a voice to bounce things off. And for some people may need more. So like there's all sorts of different aspects going on at the minute and one thing that I would, a lot of um you know I would recommend to a lot of our players is you know to look at this I suppose scenario now that we're in as a as, um, kind of you know to have a look at their career and their pathway and are they prepared for life after football so there is education grants that we have and um, you know for players to go and do you know whatever course it may be and um, whether it be coaching courses or, or different courses and um, but just to have a look at that because like you say financially our league you know you're not going to earn enough in our league to retire and not ever work again so work is certainly a reality for our players after they finished their career and it's important to be prepared for that and we do i suppose advise all of our members you know to look at education and we provide an education grant for each player up to 750 a year to go ahead and and do courses and get education so that they are prepared for life after football. So that's probably, you know, one thing that players are probably even more aware of now because of the situation we're in that, you know, if there's no football, well, what do we do? And how am I prepared for it? So uh, education is going to be massive for, for, you know, younger players, older players. It affects everybody. Some players, like the likes of the lads who are in UCD are probably better prepared for it, but there's a high percentage of our numbers of uh, players when you have a junior, can't remember the correct statistic now. I'm not going to quote it because I'm going to be wrong. But it's you know, the numbers of our players that have leaving ser are, are not very high. So um it is an important um, aspect that we need to, I suppose, reinforce now at this, this this point in time.
0: Yeah, absolutely. And in the midst of having to offer support to players who find themselves, you know, needing that support right now, of course you're also involved in trying to plan a return to football. And that's proven to be no easy task, I imagine. Can can you give us any insight into how those discussions are going, and, and how far off a return to a safe return to football might be? Yeah,
1: it, it's it's an ever changing situation, and like there's a meeting this morning, and there'll be a meeting, another meeting later in the week. So it, it does evolve, I suppose, day by day. Um, at the minute, you know, clubs and uh, the governing body are looking at, you know, funding from the FAI and from the government in order to give to the clubs, and clubs are having to come back with, um, you know, what, what their costs are and what they would need to come back. Uh, like, health-wise, you know, Alan Bourne put in, um, I think you may have seen his video there yesterday, the day before, he's put in the guidelines of what he wants to see health-wise, the they're running this tournament in July, which is like a pilot, to see if we can do things, go back to training safely and um, and play the game safely without any, I suppose, clusters of COVID-19. So we're, we're trying basically to prove to government that, you know, it is safe to go back and play football, and we can do it right in the right environment. So that's up to players and, and the government body to do that. And, you know, the FEI have committed to testing players. So you would be hopeful that that testing will be underway soon. That will allow players to go back to training safe in the knowledge that their teammates and, and themselves are going back to training Although there will be social distance, but you're going back to training initially with good confidence that you know you're going back training with people who are not affected. So that's that's obviously going to be key, the testing part of it. But obviously the finance, the finances of it is probably going to be the crux of the matter, and that at the minute is you know the big debate between clubs and you know the clubs to really trash things out because you know there's a, obviously a shortfall in terms of the government funding and the money from FIFA or the FAI. And then the money that the clubs would need in order to service, I suppose, the wage bill and you know the loss of revenue through um through the lack of gate receipts. So that's going to be the big crux of the matter now. And you know, getting clubs to come back and play, but also we have to look at other ideas. You know, in terms of streaming and other opportunities, at um you know, in order to to uh, to get revenue from the games. But like, it it is it it's at the minute it, it's um. It's a precarious position and it's not easy and that's provided it's safe to go back as well. So it's but having said that, like it's difficult when you look at all the other European countries up and running or preparing to be up and running. And as of yet, um, we have no concrete start date in. So um and that that will come down to the, the clubs and the government body get penciling that in. Mm.
0: And I think fans would be, you know, desperate for any sort of return to football. But of course, given the effects of of COVID, and and we see disturbing news coming from England, where although it's rather opaque, there there has been some positive tests with personnel from Premier League clubs. So it's we have a variety of behaviour from Belarus, who have just carried on as if nothing was happening, to other leagues which are having these phased returns. And I suppose. Much as fans would love to see football back, even behind closed doors or available on streaming, it's not really something that we can take any risks for. Because when we read about COVID and its effects, and you know we're talking about people who contracted getting significant muscle wastage, like even even if a professional footballer was to contract it and and survive, it could be potentially career threatening. So I suppose it's something where safety is ultimately paramount.
1: Absolutely. I think, you know, no one is, and, and that's why, you know, it was great that the FEI committed to testing the players. And I think, you know, once that's in place, that's going to be key to the whole thing. Because if you can test players and players don't have it, well, then essentially, you know, there's not really much danger. And um, even when you come into contact, once, you know, the, the people on the pitch uh, are are not carrying. So it's, um, but that's obviously going to be key to it. But, um, like it, it's just um, you know we can't kind of switch off completely either because you know there's no guarantee that we will get um, a vaccine for this and mm-hmm. it's probably something that's going to be it's not going to go away in the next six months or a more or two years possibly it could be five or six or seven years before we have a vaccine if we get a vaccine at all so it's something that we're going to have to adapt it and um, and like you say it would be great even if you know if there's limited fans. Or you know, stream it will. give I suppose supporters a great boost to see football being played. I think everyone is missing sport, uh, and you know and none more so than myself and the players. But like it, you have to remember that it's the players that are going to be taking the risk in, in terms of going back to play. And 87% of our members, you know, are happy to go back training and back playing. So that that's a good indication of um, where players' heads are at in terms of returning to football and. If 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 it was a case that players didn't want to return to football, we wouldn't be having this discussion. So, and um, that that's a massive um, boost, you know, for the governing body and the clubs that players, are, you know, want to return to football.
0: Absolutely. Now, the the one thing that you know will probably take a little bit longer is for fans to be able to return to football. And uh, given that we had like a start of the season that was very promising, there seemed to be great atmospheres, increasing crowds. Uh, how how big a difference do you think it'll make to players, even if they do return, which will obviously be a boost to to be behind closed doors? Do you think that's going to be psychologically difficult for players? Uh,
1: look, it's going to be the same for everyone, though. Yeah, it, yeah. And I had played in a game behind closed doors, and it's eerie to be in a, a big stadium. It was actually it was uh, Bucharest we played over there, and you know you're in a big stadium and it's empty, and you know you can hear everything and it's um, look, it's different. It's more like a preseason friendly sort of atmosphere where you know it's only the, the players and staff that are there. But it's something that we're going to have to become accustomed to. I think at this point in time, I I, I gladly take it because you know it's you know maybe eight or nine weeks since we played or even trained, so you'd be you'd be happy to go back and play a game, even if it was behind closed doors. But look, it's not ideal for fans. Fans are a massive part of the game, and you know they make they make the game and they make it. You know the atmosphere and, and you know the enjoyment levels and it's you know goes like saying everybody wants fans there but you know it's it's a needs most case where you're looking at try, trying to return so you give something a little bit of sport back to the fans and look down the line we're looking at obviously phasing back support and certain numbers and certain restrictions will probably be included going by the government's roadmap so the one thing i i, I was listening um Professor of Immunology Kingston Mills during the week on Claireborne and he was saying about um that you know going to football matches is not as dangerous as travelling. So mm-hmm. um, you know, that's that that is a positive sign. And you know, also look at, you mentioned about you know it could take seven or eight years before you get before you get a vaccine. So I think social distance is, is going to be here for for a good while, and uh, we just have to adapt to it and get used to it and, and try and get things up and running I think probably now is probably the safest time to return in terms of numbers the way things are going down and it, the way the virus seems to be suppressed in the community at the minute but we all have to play our part in order to you know return to football safely
0: I suppose some of the fans may have noticed that the guys are around town. We see Patrick Hoban out doing his jogging in town, and some of the other some of the other players have been seen. So we've seen Andy Boyle hit the papers doing his training routines. But I suppose what we're what we're particularly interested in is, is some, of the, some of the lads are more recently arrived than others. And one in particular was Stefan Kolevich. He had only just kind of begun his Dundalk career when all of this came down on him. And, and I suppose people have been thinking about Stefan and, uh, and, and being in a, a kind of strange country in a new squad and then suddenly not really able to, to mix and blend. Um, just, I was just kind of curious, I suppose fans are as well. Uh, has Stefan been a, a virtual participant? Have you tried to integrate him and look after him as best you can via Zoom and other means?
1: Yeah, well, look, I think your know, Stefan's a great lad. Uh, they, you know, he's fitted in straight away, and, and the lads up there in the Dundalk are really looking after him as well, and they've been in touch with him, and I know that he's been, you know, he's been able to do his gym work and all the rest. And uh, you know, he's, Brian Garland is in, is um, not living too far away from him. And Brian, as you know, is a great captain and a great leader, so it's great that you know Brian has been probably taking him under his wing and a few of the lads. So, it, look, it is difficult for him, you know to be in a different country, you know, away from home with his friends and his family. Um, like it, it's certainly not easy for him. And you've got to feel for players like that who are in that situation. But, you know, he's, I think he's, he's thrown himself into his training and he's flying for it. And, and you know, we've got only got a glimpse of him up in Finn Harps, but he looks a real exciting player. And it would be great to see him uh, when we do get back playing.
0: No, oh, absolutely. I think we just can't wait to see a little bit more of him. I think what in the in the few minutes he had, I think we almost had a goal and assist. So uh, hopefully, yeah. even if it's behind closed doors, we'll get to see his skills pretty shortly. If we begin to kind of look at your career beyond the current crisis, because I'm sure people are pretty sick of it and they don't want to hear an entire podcast devoted to it. You've, you've mentioned, you know, being aware of the PFAI and its role and um, looking back at your career, as I mentioned, there's been obviously great success, but also quite a bit of precariousness with clubs running into financial difficulty, even in the best of times. And y- your career has sort of spanned moments where the league has essentially been mostly part time and then aspired to professionalism and then maybe fallen back a little bit again and had to hit financial hard times and had to go part time. So I just kind of wanted to explore that with you. I mean, I suppose St. Francis and Dublin City are, are two clubs that you were with in the earlier part of your career, both of which now are no longer in the league. And I, I suppose you were you were there at the times when, when particularly Dublin City hit difficulties and essentially the club folded. What What is it like for a player when they're suddenly told that their, their wages can't be paid and their contracts can't be honoured and their club essentially is is going down the tubes. It must be a, a very difficult moment.
1: Yeah, I think, I suppose, like when St. Francis was a part like I was to St. Francis from Shelburne, so it was a great opportunity to, to go and play football and, and see if I was, I suppose, up to League of Ireland and I was throwing in the deep end, I think it was 17 or 18, and you know, it, for me, it was an opportunity to go and play League of Ireland football in the first division and I like, grasped it and went to draw it from then. But as you say, Dublin City, it's... um. When I left Rotterdam, I went there, and it was, I suppose the season was, was going quite well for us at the time. We were we were safe in the league, and we were in the quarterfinal, I think, at the cup. And then, you know, I remember being called to a hotel in Dublin, I can't really think of the name, but it was crossing the cat and cage in Dublin, and we were called there on a Wednesday night, and so I said, this is strange. I, I wouldn't have probably been as in tune as to what's going on in the league as I would be these days, but... I thought this is a strange one so um it was a little bit more naive back then and uh, we were basically pulled in and, and Ronan theory Rocky was the was the chairman and he says as I don't have the money to pay the wages that we would have been paid up until the previous week but he said we're we're gone. Said, That's it and it was kind of like and um, it was a surreal moment I was thinking Jesus, it just doesn't happen like that does it and it, and it was and the lads all went across the road to the pub. And uh, like we, we were just kind of we didn't know what to do with ourselves because we were expecting to be training the following day preparing for Bohemians and as it turned out I ended up playing Gaelic for my local club on Friday night in the championship instead of instead of playing against against Bohemians in Dalyman Park so it's um, yeah it's certainly a strange experience and it's not one that you that, that you would like I suppose the fact that I would have been a relatively young and I had kids and mortgages to pay and all the rest it, it, it's not devastating news it's obviously disappointing but it's um, yeah look it's probably it's a, it's a tough moment depending on your 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 situation do you know um, mm. whereas I, I just kind of got on with and went out and played Gaelic on Friday night instead
0: and On that we, we know that you're kind of heavily involved in Gaelic football as well and of course um, there's a kind of a, a, a obvious crossover of skills between being a, a soccer goalkeeper and a, and a Gaelic footballer as well and you, you play Gaelic uh, from a Quite a young age, you know, so it was formative as well. Uh, do, hmm. do you see a kind of a, do you see a, an, an influence on on one game from the other? Do you think being a Gaelic footballer uh, influences your your uh, style as a goalkeeper?
1: Um, yeah, like I, I played all my Gaelic outfield. I did play in goals a little bit here and there, depending, you know, the, like I say, sometimes when I was under ten, I was playing under fourteen goals because I wouldn't get on the team, so I would. But I, I played all my Gaelic as a as a centre forward, midfielder. Um, so I would think that that would contribute to being strong on crosses and strong in the air, um, and I, I certainly felt that you know that would be a key part of, of my goalkeeping that I can come and demand uh, command the box quite well, and you know like I think Gaelic football certainly helped me from that. Um, but like I, I really didn't really play that much in goals at all in Gaelic, and um, so it was kind of I always played soccer in goals and I always played in the Gaelic out the field, so I kind of got. I always enjoyed obviously playing the goals and um so I kinda of got the best of both worlds by, by mixing it up when I was a kid. I used to play both and, and that's the that's the way I, I used to operate. So um it, you know, I suppose I always get associated with the Gaelic style because I played I played Gaelic and it's sure it's easy to kinda of, but I wouldn't have played play way more soccer now at this stage than, than Gaelic football, you know. Mm-hmm.
0: Talking about your time in Drogheda, that, that was a period when Drogheda were on something of the crest of a wave, they were they were competitive and they were winning trophies and You played under Harry McHugh, and I think Paul Doolin then came in, and Paul made the decision to go full time professional i 'm just wondering about the difference between our league when, it, when a club goes full time prote- professional compared to when we operate in a a club might be operating in a part time mode. Was there a big noticeable transformation in the weekly routine at Drogheda United once Paul came in and said, look, it's going to be a full-time club? Yeah, well,
1: the thing about people probably mostly forget about it but actually, we went full-time under uh, Harry McHugh, but it was a version of full-time and it was probably typical of the way League of Ireland was. We had, say, maybe 15 part-time players and we had six or seven full-time players, like I would have went. I was young. I would have went full time. Declan and Ryan went full time, um, we and with a couple of guys from New Zealand, Lee Jones and Shea Bonds, and think were their names. They came in and they were full time. And Stuart Taylor, who later went on to be um, the Limerick manager, and he's a he's system manager somewhere in the UK now. And um, so there was six or seven of us that were full time. So we would have trained in the morning and in the evening. So that was. Uh, but when Paul came in, it went from you know being six or seven full timers to. Uh, a squad of full timers. So I, I got to see that transition from kind of a part-time, full-time operation to completely full-time and training in the mornings. And you know that was your sole focus. And look, I like I always enjoyed it. And um, you know, the full full-time football. It's a you know it's a great lifestyle. Although you know it's not the same wages as it were that you would you know we associate with the UK. But you know, for it to be trained as a full-time athlete is you know for somebody who loves sport and loves football. It, it, it's, a, it's, you know, it's a brilliant way to earn a living doing something that you love, you know?
0: And do you think when when we talk about League of Ireland clubs trying to bridge that gap with our European equivalents, which Dundalk has done admirably and, and, and more so than most clubs, we've, we've proven ourselves to be very competitive on the European stage in recent years, but traditionally League of Ireland clubs perhaps were always the underdog in Europe. And do you think like full-time professionalism and a, 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 rather than that sort of hybrid mix of a core of full timers and, and, and then a, a being made up by part timers, do you think that the full time professional model equivalent to our European competitors is essential for us really to have a shot at, at um, being successful in Europe?
1: Yeah, well, it certainly does. It's not solely down to a full-time professional model, though. I think you know one of the major changes was you know the change from winter football to summer football. I think that was a key component in you know the results in Europe. You look at Shamrock Rovers uh, qualifying for group stages, and you look at ourselves qualifying for the group stages, and all of those massive achievements in European football from from our League of Ireland clubs were done when when teams are playing playing when they were in season. So, like, it used to be the case where the first game of the season um, was a European game and players were just back pre-season and they were having to play the best opposition they were going to face all season long with no, with no real kind of football under their belt. So, um, I think summer football has been a massive contributing factor to successful runs in Europe. And you can see even see it when I was at Pats in 2009, we would beat be teams. They could like themselves half the Russian Premier League team. And Pats, even the year before, Played against Hertha Berlin and beat sport And all these, you know, Drottlers nearly got there against Dynamo Kiev. All of this was achieved with summer football. So, as well as being professional teams, summer football has been a big factor as well.
0: Mm, yeah, I do recall. Now you mention it, that often our first really competitive game would be against uh, our, our European Cup or UEFA Cup opponents, and inevitably you were you were at a disadvantage when you were trying to find fitness and form. So I, I totally concur there. You mentioned Pat's, and that was one of the clubs that you did enjoy considerable success at. You were voted Player of the Year. You also had that memorable European run. You were kind of brought to Pat's by Jeff Kenna, who also had you at Galway United, and that must have been reassuring. Like you've worked with a lot of managers and a lot of big names in the league, but Jeff seemed to to want to bring you from one club to another. Did you have a good relationship with him? Yeah,
1: I think I had, a, I had a really good relationship with Jeff. I think, um, you know, probably one of the achievements that I would have had in my career that, you know, you wouldn't g- g- gain any limelight like, would be the year that, you know, Galway and I, we stayed up on the last game of the season. I think with 10 games to go, we could have been 10 points behind um, and we were bottom of the table and you had to, we had to climb four places, you know, in order to stay up. And, you know, Jeff was the manager at that time. We brought in, we brought in a... a business coach you know for um, we, we took a week off training and we went into a hotel and we spent the week there kind of ironing out all our problems and our fears and all the rest and you know preparing mentally for it. and we ended up going on a run that only Bohemians that year I suppose for the last 10 or 12 games I can't remember the specifics of it And um, only Bohemians had a better run in the last 10 games and we ended up staying up beating UCD in UCD in the last game of the season and it was one of those achievements that you know as a group that um, you know, when everyone had written us off, we were able to, I suppose, dig deep and, and, and find a way. And, and I think we won six or seven games, which we hadn't won all season, and uh, stayed up and final game of the season. So it's probably one of one of the achievements We like got no medal for it, um, but we got a lot of satisfaction out of it. And it was um, Jeff was the manager, and it was the reason he got the past job, I suppose. And uh, like it was great that he, you know, felt that I was good enough to go to go to pass because it would have been you no know, disrespect, It would have been a step up from Galway, there would have been certain expectations of Pats, they would have been you know, contending for leagues and titles and, and cups and stuff like that. And, and you know, it was certainly, um, you know, you were going to a club where you were expected to win trophies.
0: And that season in Galway, there did seem to be that rem- miraculous transformation in mentality and i suppose given your position on on the field particularly uh, the mental aspect of the game and mentality must be particularly important and as regards being a goalkeeper i suppose by the nature of the position i mean you're you're bearing a huge amount of responsibility any any slip is usually heavily punished and i i suppose it must be a difficult position to play in sometimes you know when 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 you kind of do concede a goal and, and you look down the field and you see 10 disappointed faces. And I suppose it's up to the other players to kind of make sure their goalkeeper is picked up then. But as regards playing in such a vital position with such responsibility, is there a different mentality to being a goalkeeper than an outfield player?
1: Yeah, absolutely. I think you know there, there, there certainly is. I think you know goalkeeping is is not for everyone. I don't, you don't you don't get into goalkeeping to be the hero, and um, I think generally you, you're more likely to get the blame. So you're not you're not in it for the pats in the back. And um, but it's you know it's a very rewarding position as well. And, and like I obviously you know, I enjoy this. So I, I spent all my working life doing it. Um, but you look, know, you're right in saying it, it's it's challenging as well, challenging mentally, and you know you certainly need a different attitude and, and, um, you know, it's, like you say, everyone is a goalkeeping coach these days and everyone is a goalkeeping expert and, you know, there's a lot of people out there who know more about goalkeeping than me and they've never kicked the ball so, um, you know, you always run into the experts and, but, um, as, as long as, as long as I get picked to play, that's that's my major thing. Once the manager's happy with me and I'm I'm, pick, I, I'm playing, I'm generally quite happy. But like you see, you have to be able to, you have to be mentally strong and tough and be able to overcome criticism and adversity because things don't always go right. You're always going to have periods and and mistakes are always going to be made, and that's how you deal with them and how you bounce back. Uh, and you know, you you need to you need to be mentally strong and have a good attitude. So. And certainly, you know, it's a different mental breakdown than supposed to be a goalkeeper.
0: There's a reputation that goalkeepers, they do have a union among themselves and, and your, your opposite numbers in other clubs are, are, are basically uh, facing the same difficulties and you can kind of lean on each other at times. Do you find that that is the case in the League of Ireland that the, the goalkeepers for the clubs are their own little support group?
1: Oh, we look. At you. Yeah, I suppose you have a support group within the support group because you have your your goalkeeping colleagues at your own club, and you know generally then you your goalkeeper. Like it's such a small kind of league that we all know each other. And all the goalkeepers who either work together or come across each other at this stage. And so look, there, there's certainly a goalkeeping union there. That's for sure.
0: And when you do face those crucial games, those kind of league-deciding games towards the end of the season or a big cup final in front of tens of thousands, are they more nervous occasions than your standard league game? Or Do, do you have any insights for young goalkeepers who might be listening into how to handle nerves for, for big games?
1: Yeah, I, look, I probably... I, I'm not really kind of a nervous character, if you, if you know what I mean. Um, I, like, I really enjoy it and embrace it, and I suppose it's probably, you know through years of playing that, you know, you learn to, you know, to, to do it that way. like I look at the, like a cup final, I look at that as an opportunity to go out and play in the biggest game of your career potentially and and enjoy the occasion. And I I wouldn't, I try not to have any fear about that. And, and, you know, these are the moments and the occasions that you want to play in. And, you know, I wouldn't be fearful of it. You've got to enjoy it. And, um, and make the most of it. You know, I think if you're going out there with the attitude is you're worried about making a mistake or you're, you know, worried about this, worried about that, it's not a good way to go into a game. I think you've got to go into it looking to be confident, uh, looking to win it, looking to play well. As a goalkeeper, you can't really force things. You can't go out there and, and make a great save. You know, the game has to come to you. So I would also, kind of, for young goalkeepers, don't be too eager to do things to show people that, you know, that you are a good goalkeeper. It will happen. You know, you just got to do the right things at the right time when it comes your way. So you can't be too eager. Um, so that that would be my advice. But it, look, it, I see games and big games like that as an opportunity. You know, to go and enjoy. You know, playing at the top level. You know.
0: And after St. Pat's, you moved on to Sligo, where you had a very successful period, and that was a more silverware. How did you enjoy the period at Sligo, particularly under Ian Barraclough who was a manager who impressed a lot of people at the time?
1: Yeah, it was it was because Paul Cook signed me and um I we started pre-season um, in Sligo and I think we're two or three weeks into pre-season and Paul Cook, I was driving into the training ground with Clarion Hotel, we used to meet there and and train, and and train in the IT and I could see Cookie heading in the opposite direction. I'm going, Where is he going? And I drive in the trainer and here he's gone to in Stanley like so and that was a week before the start of the season and the whole all the talk of when I was going to Sligo and. Um, you know, with the players that, that Cookie had signed and the players that were already there, it was they were going to really push on to win the league this year. And you know, they they like to sign myself and Ross Gaynor and um, son Robert Baco, Mark Quigley, Danny North, uh, just to name a few, I'm probably missing a few there, but it, and you look at the players that they had, the likes of Joseph and Doe and Danny Ventry and Gavin Pierce, Jason McGinnis, all these guys that were there and knocking on the door in the previous year. And you know, it was kind of a, a bit of a shock that the manager was Heading off in another direction, and you know that like, you know the ambition was to win the league. But Ian Barraclough came in, wouldn't have known any any of the players really, and um, steadied the ship. And um, you know the rest is history. We had, went on to have a tremendous year and, and to win the league. And uh, obviously it was my first league title, and it was something that I was uh, that was the reason I went to Sligo because I just felt that, at parts with Pete going and Liam coming in, there was going to be a major of overhaul of the squad and I just felt that Sligo were ready to win the league and I I kind of felt this could be the opportunity now to win the league that you know I was reaching to do it and I hadn't done it at that stage and I just seen it as an opportunity to to get to get that league medal that at least if you know I I get a league medal for all the years that you put into the league to go win one it was going to uh, be a big moment for me you know.
0: And of course, Sligo, kind of like Dundalk, it's, it's a really, it's a great football town, particularly when they have a successful team. And as regards capturing the imagination of the fans and, and the celebrations there, when you did manage to, to land the title, um, that must have been a particularly fond memory to know that you had that Champions Medal and, and that nobody could now take it away from you.
1: Yeah, absolutely. I think Sligo is very like Dundalk. Like, like what you say, it's a real soccer town. Um, you know, it, Soccer... In, in Sligo is, is number one. There's no doubt about that. Um, and it's the same as and Dawkins, Dawkins football town, same as Sligo. And that's the same, you, you kind of have, um, you know, a great rapport with, with, with the fans in there as well, because it was 35 years since they won the league. And, and because they love the football so much, you know, they, there was great buildup and anticipation, you know, coming towards the end of that season. And, and um, so like it, it the celebrations went on for two weeks. I remember we won the league against against uh, the Pat's and um, you know I think they were, they were still partying for a week after the season. There was still two games to go, and um, but uh, we and we lost the last two games. Funnily enough, after after we the league, but it was it was fantastic, fantastic achievement, I had a great time in my career, and really obviously enjoyed enjoyed the immensely. We went to win the cup the following year and had the cup, and then after that I was off to Dundalk.
0: And speaking of which, that brings me to our next point. Uh, what, one of your last uh, great moments with that Sligo side would have been at our expense, the Satanta Cup final of 2014. And that was really when the current Dundalk team was sort of being formed or the, the one that went on to be so successful. So you kind of got to initially see that Stephen Kenny Dundalk team forming um, from, from the outside. Basically, do you have many recollections of that beyond the driving rain and the downpour and the deluge? Do you have any recollections of that team and forming an impression of 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 what Dundalk were becoming under Stephen Kenny? Yeah, I, I, like obviously, I
1: remember that game quite well, and it was. I know Dundalk at the time, like Stephen, they would have felt they edged the game and all. There, we there was kind of a difference there. We were on the slide. I, I felt that that was our opportunity that was I remember thinking at the time that was possibly our only opportunity to win a trophy that year. You'd be more honest about it now than you can be at the time, but I just felt this was going to be our opportunity to win a trophy, the Santa Cup final, because we were definitely, you know, we were definitely slipping as from where we were in twenty twelve and even twenty thirteen, we we it was definitely we weren't as as potent as we had been. And I just felt that Santa Cup was probably the only opportunity we were going to have have Silverware, so we put a huge emphasis into that game, and obviously, we got the result. And the weather helped in the last 10 minutes as well when the dog were pushing on for the equaliser. But, um, I, I suppose I noticed more in the games that followed about you know the real quality that Dundalk had as we played them then in the league and the FA Cup with the FA Cup, uh, quarter final. It, last 16 I can't remember what it was but it was late basically two or three weeks later we had to play them again and again and the difference in Dundalk from like, not that they played badly in the Santa Cup uh, final the difference in the next two games kind of reaffirmed what I had thought about our own situation because they absolutely pulverised us and um, it was I remember somebody said to me after the game that they had 21 saves in one of the games and we got beat 3-0 we got absolutely we got a hiding and and the hunger and the energy that the Dundalk team had um, was something that stood out at me I just these boys are really at it and uh, you could see you know you could see it from like uh, and all the players like I would have been familiar with all the players that Stephen had signed and you know they were developing into the players that we now know they are and um, you know but the energy levels of that team was frightening and um, as I said it it kind of reaffirmed where I thought we were sliding and they were certainly on the way up and, as we know, went on to win the, win the league that year.
0: And you, you found yourself swiftly in the Dundalk dressing room then and part of a championship-winning team. And I suppose that was a characteristic of of that period in Dundalk. When Stephen came in, the fitness level seemed to raise above all of our competitors by by a significant factor. And a lot of people refer to the fitness as well as the style of play that Dundalk seemed to win a lot of games in the final 10 or 15 minutes when opposition were flagging and we still had the stamina to keep on going. So <clears throat> when you joined Dundalk, um, did you notice, uh, was there any visible differences in the way Dundalk went about their business as regards training or, or, or the, the mentality side of the game, which you think gave them that edge?
1: Yeah there certainly was um, you know, not that, like, I would say w- Europe is where you look at when you look at European teams and you come up against them in Europe and you see you know, the physique of the players and you swap the jerseys or whatever it is and you see players in the flesh and you can see how lean they are and generally in League of Ireland clubs it, my previous experience would have been you'd have five or six lads who were you know, in immaculate nick and they were you know I suppose European standard kind of physique or whatever. And you go into the dog restroom, every player, every single player, no matter who it is, is doing the same thing and operating on the same level. And you know, when we go and play in Europe, uh, you'll have noticed over the last there is no kind of uh, difference in fitness levels. So that's why Dundalk Dog have been success it's been a key component of why they've been successful over the last number of years, is because of the fitness and you know, the strength work and the gym work and and then, you know, the attitude and the application of the players has been obviously fantastic in order to achieve that. And, you know, it, it was clear to me when I went in there that, you know, Stephen was looking to move on to the next level and looking to achieve stuff that hasn't been achieved before. And, you know, you know you either get on board or you get left behind and you get replaced. And, you know, I wanted to be part of it. And um, Obviously, the first year he came in, we won the double. and um, We got beat by Bhatia Borisov in over there and we drew it home so like you know they were topside and um, you know that that's where the level where we were at we knew we weren't far away and, and you know the team obviously you know it was evolving each year you know Stephen you know he would bring in one or two players he wasn't wholesale changes. he kept what he had and he he, he he built on it every year and you know we went into I suppose 2016 uh, flying although we lost Richie we lost a player every year at least one, and but you know he kind of kept the core group there. But the, the core application and attitude was there throughout. And Stephen was a great man to kind of to motivate players and get players to aim higher and and, and to go and achieve things that people thought weren't achievable.
0: And I think that's what really surprised and delighted Dundalk fans so much in that we had kind of become accustomed to maybe getting a good team together and then seeing it picked apart by Bosman transfers or maybe other clubs coming in for our key players. But what was remarkable is we did lose a lot of talent, but he was able to sustain it and we were competitive uh, right throughout that period. I suppose looking at that that period since you joined on doc, it's it's been probably the most successful. Has it been the most enjoyable uh, period of your career as well? Yeah, it, it certainly has. Like uh, you
1: know, I have obviously enjoyed like I enjoyed S- Sligo immensely as well. Like I moved down there, we um my wife had baby, our first child in there as well, and it's I suppose it's hard to compare, but there's no denying like you know, the success that we've we've had in the dock has been, you know, it's you know it's what you dream of when you're in your career, you know, to go and play so many games in Europe and play in the Europa League group stages and you know win leagues and cups and all the rest, like it, it's been fantastic, and I, um, I couldn't have asked for more when I joined the dock, and. Um, it, you know you I signed the two year deal and it was like you know I'll do two years and she look that could be the end of me and now I'm five or six years down the road and I'm like hungry for more so um it's uh look it's been great for me um as a as a player to you know to join the dock and it's probably given me that hunger to try and and um, to go that extra mile to stay to hang on and to stay involved and to be successful as long as I can you know.
0: The following year, of course, we did get a chance for revenge against Baté and we took it with aplomb. And it was, it was quite a frenetic period because as well as playing league games, we had to kind of dash from Iceland to Belarus and then back again. That that year was particularly intense. But do you, do you, I, I know that many Dundalk fans have particularly fond memories of the game against Baté and Tala. And uh, is, is that true to say of yourself as well?
1: Absolutely, yeah. I think certainly more so than the game away in Bathay because we got an absolute hiding over there, and we were just—you'll hear many of the players going on about it. We were blessed to get every every one they win because I think Bathay had realised that we we had shocked them last year or the previous year, and uh, it was one of those um, one of those games. You could see that they were ready for us, and they wanted to get the job done at home because they knew they were going to knew that we you know we had plenty of the ability and that we were a decent side so they really went for us but we, somehow we got out of there with a 1-0 with a defeat um, and like the performance and talent, and um, it, it wasn't typical of a League of Ireland team or you know in general in Europe you think a League of Ireland wins it's like getting an early goal and hanging on back to the wall so we went out there and we played football and um, way I suppose it's synonymous with Dundalk and Steven style and we were there and, and did it the way he would have wanted to do it and we would have wanted to do it and it wasn't a case of hanging on and um, it was a case of, you know we applied the pressure we got the goals we played really well and we had the confidence and the courage to continue to do that as opposed to sitting back and inviting them on and we went and got you know they got even more nervous because the pressure was on them to do it and, and we punished them so it was a it was a fantastic night obviously you know to to, I suppose, seal Europa League group place and, and give yourself an opportunity to go into the Champions League it was, you know, it's, it's certainly something that you probably will to really appreciate until long after your career is over.
0: Absolutely, and I think it's, it's not only the result itself, but the manner of the result was something that we all took exceptional pride in because, as you say, it was an almost perfect performance. Uh, not only did we hit them at the right time and sap the morale with, with those three goals, but uh the, the manner in which we played, and st- when Stephen talked about dominating possession in Europe, I suppose a lot of people would raise their eyebrows and say, "Well, Irish teams don't don't do that," and they don't even aspire to do that." But he changed that, and we did. And I suppose, you know, the the question is, I, you've talked a little bit about how he wanted to raise the the, this, the bar and raise standards. Uh, saying you're going to do that, saying you're going to make a League of Ireland side, a passing side that dominates possession in Europe, is is easy. But doing it <laughs> is something entirely different. The ability to, to kind of make that change and, and bring Dundalk to that level is something that you would have an insight into is there anything in particular that stands out in, in that ambition and achieving that ambition that you see as core to the way that Stephen does things?
1: Yeah, well, I, I think Stephen gives, gives players, you know, the belief, you know, that, you know, they can go and do that. And I think, you know, when you, you, you do that individually and then collectively, you know, that multiplies and comes together, you know, and then, um, you know, Stephen has been able to do that. And I think, you know, not only like, it's one thing saying it and then, you, know, you go out and you see players then doing it, and that also fuels that confidence as well. Uh, and you know we, we built on that with the result against Bath. Obviously, we, we we gave a poor account of ourselves over there, but we got out of there with a result that was you know not insurmountable. And then you know to go and play the way we did in in the in the gaming in, in Tala. You know, as Stevie O'Donnell spoke the night before about you know how how we could do it, and and Stephen the same and. And then we went out and did it, and that really gave us the confidence you know, to kick on. I think, you know, the Legia game, I think we were in Legia, we were 1-0 up, and they were down to 10 men, and we just needed a goal to go to extra time. And we were pushing on to try and get that goal, you know, to go to the Champions League. So, like, I know they got a 90 minute equaliser, whatever else, but, you know, it was a mistake pushing on in the last minute. We would have won that game over there, like, and who would have thought of that? Do you think? Real Madrid went there and drew 3 all a couple of weeks later. So, um, yeah, look, it's fantastic stuff. And, um, you know, the players and and the group, you know, were able to kind of... It, and it wasn't a one-off. Like, it, we were able to sustain that. And, you know, you, you look at the group stages and let's you know, go and beat Maccabi Tel Aviv in the manner we did. We looked, you know, every inter-European team. So, um, you know, when you take wages out of it and you just look at the football that was played... Our lads are on on the same level as players who are, whatever millionaires or multi-millionaires or whatever it may be. And, and when like, I mean, it comes into it, it's a game of football. And you know, we left kind of so the baggage of, you know, whatever wages are aside. And look, you know, it was man to, man on man, and we, we had the confidence that we could go and play, you know, to the best of our abilities, which is what you have to do in Europe to compete.
0: It's that your run is still a source of pride, I think, for for Dundalk fans, and always will be. Uh, and of course, we we may have Europe in some form to look forward to again. Currently, they're planning a a, a sort of a, a There's talk of some sort of Super League mini tournament involving the European clubs. Is that still up in the air, or is that to be decided?
1: It, it at the minute it's a they're, they're calling a pilot scheme where the four teams are going to play um in July, and it did do like it is kind of a pre-European tournament. But now with the European, the UEFA had a, were scheduled a meeting this month, and now that meeting has been put back. So that with the Europa League and Champions League. Final is not going to be played or pencilled into play till August. You just wonder whether the Europa League qualify the Champions League qualification rounds will come after that date or before, because you look at you know the, the ethical situation of running the qualifiers for a tournament that's not even hasn't been completed yet. So and um, now although it's, it, the circumstances are are, are unforeseen and. Um, you just you just don't know what they're thinking is on it. I can't. I, like, I don't see it being cancelled, um, but I certainly hope not. But you're probably looking at maybe September, October. So whether the July tournament now, um is as relevant to European getting pre- prepared for Europe or not, I don't know. So like like I say, everything is changing all the time. You'd be more you'd be more I suppose keen to get the league back up and running, uh, as opposed to a fourteen tournament. But I think if the tournament goes ahead, it's, it's more of a pilot just to see that we can go back and play football safely and prove to clubs that this can be done and we can play behind closed doors and revenue can be earned from it in terms of stream. And so it's, like, there's all sorts of things that have to be sorted out yet. But look, players, you know, even from my own point of view, I don't know how many opportunities I will have to play in, in the Champions League again. And um, I think players are very focused in our group on trying to achieve what we've achieved before and you know we'll be preparing as best as we can and training as hard as we can, no matter what the circumstances are, in order to to be in as good a place as possible for for European qualification.
0: Now you're also one of the few league players who's made the transition into the into the international squad as well. What was that like as an experience?
1: Yeah, it, it was brilliant. And um, to be honest, like you know, to go in initially, I was invited in to train, and you know, I I gone in there with no kind of. I suppose apprehensions about, you know, our inferiority, complex or whatever. So I was in there to try and, you know, to show Martin O'Neill and Roy Keane and whoever else and the goalkeepers that were there that, you know, I was as capable as they were. And I think, you know, I, I went in with no fear and, you know, obviously hoping to do as well as I could and, and obviously gave it my best shot and, um, and enjoyed the whole thing. And, and it went really well for me and, and Martin. You know, brought me in then a couple of another time to train later on and, and ended up putting me in the squad for the Dutch game and that was before the before the European Championships. So I was I was nearly in the shake up to go to the European Championships at that stage with the kind of the the uh, lads were training or there was a couple of lads injured and stuff like that. So it was um yeah, it was a great experience and to get called in again for the third time to go to play um in, in a World Cup qualifier although on the bench but it was um, a great boost, I suppose. You know, to be to be involved in there, and you know that you know that you know, they were bringing League of Ireland players in. So it was it was a brilliant experience, you know.
0: And now that Stephen is in charge of the international side, um, do you expect that he'll have a similar transformation in style that he managed to achieve with Dundalk? Because a lot of people, myself included, have been critical of the style of play that the international team has had at times. Uh, particularly when contrasted with Dundalk man, what, what we kind of managed to do in our ambition to you know be more of a be more of a european style of side as regards how we approach play and possession so do, do you think he'll be able to make us sort of um, more in that style of what we tend to see from international teams on the continent
1: i think what you what i expect to see from him is similar to what we have the same style that we played i think um, and that the under twenty ones have played to seeing the job he's done, with the twenty ones how competitive they are, and how well they they have done under him. And I I don't see any reason for that to change. I don't think you'll see massive changes in Steven's approach. I think um, he'll want us to play football the way he likes to like to, likes it to be played. And um, you know he's very astute in terms of you know the players that he, he plays and what positions. And you know he'll leave no stone unturned. I know from speaking to him that you know he's going to give this every everything he's got and. Uh, and that's a frightening prospect because you know he, he's been an unbelievable manager, and you know you know the, the levels and the depths that he's going to go to, to make this team successful, and um, you know I'm really looking forward to seeing you know what he does with the Irish team, and uh, I've no doubt he'll be successful. I I'm, 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 I and you know I know the the rest of the league is looking on and hoping he will be too. And I think you know as a, a former player, of his I, I think. Uh, you know, I have every confidence that he will do do a great job.
0: Hopefully, hopefully, fingers crossed. Just speaking about your time at Sligo, the, it was a period of success, and and unfortunately, I suppose for Sligo fans, it was never really built upon. As you mentioned, there seemed to be a crest and then something off a slide. And I suppose a big challenge for Dundalk was the moment when Stephen did get the international job, and Vinny stepped up and took over. And these are moments in clubs' histories where things can. Things can go, uh, they can continue or, or they can begin to decline. But Vinny's done a, a, a remarkable job. He, he, he's managed to maintain all that was good about the squad. And we went on to have a tremendous season and get a, a hall of trophies playing really attractive football and integrate new players into the squad. So there, there has been, you know, Dundalk fans have been very relieved by the continuity of success and style that, that we've had. What what do you think that's attributable to? I mean, I suppose you, you you would you would have worked with a lot of managers, and they'd all have their own attributes. But um, what would you see that, about Vinny that uh, allowed him to continue that success?
1: Yeah, well, I, like I think continuity is the main, you know, team there. You look at you know Vinny has been, you know, he has been at Dundalk through all success. So you know he has seen um, what Stephen has done and has worked more closely with him than anyone. So he's been. Aware of all everything that's going on, and it's been a massive part of of Dundalk's success. Before, obviously, he was the manager in his own right. So, like, he had the ability to see all the good things and all the bad things, and where things can be improved upon. Um, And because there's always improvements in everything, that's not a criticism. You know, you look at things that we could do better, and he's been, I suppose, in in the best seat in the house in terms of that, and now he's been able to take it on. And kick on, and, and like you're right, you rightly said, like last year, you know, to, to uh, I suppose fill the void of Stephen and you know, to introduce like a, a, probably more rotation in the squad than would have been before. And, and like he's certainly done it his own way, although like he's kept a lot of the things, the like good things that were right, but he has adapted it as well. So, you know, like it's been a fantastic achievement, you know, for Vinny to, to step in after Stephen had left when people would have been questioning. You know the club and him, and would he be able to do it? And he's he's answered all of those things emphatically. With you know, we were we were a kick of a ball away from winning, you know, every trophy that we were in last year. So, and um, I think that's probably goes slightly unrecognized a little bit. You know, you know, people think about when well, we lost the cup final, but we like we won the league in this league cup and the United Union cup or whatever else, like the President's Cup. So, like you know. It was in a f- phenomenal season for a man in charge for his first year.
0: And not, not an easy one either because uh, plenty of injuries along the way and, and at times we, we, we had to call upon players to play out of position and we had difficult moments. So through all that, you know, when, when a manager in his first season might have thought, oh, look, my, my luck is just out here. This isn't going to go my way. He managed to keep cool and, and turn it all around and ultimately win basically almost a clean sweep.
1: Yeah, absolutely. I think you, you only have to go back to, I suppose, when we were in Sligo and we were 13 points behind, and we had the likes of Robbie Benson injured, and I think our Cameron Green could be Chris Yeats or Patrick McInnity. Like Robbie was out for four or five months, you know, and you know to turn around in the fashion that we did, and you know to, I suppose, to to win the league in September, and um, you know it was a phenomenal achievement, um, and. Probably like like you say, it's one of those things that you probably won't appreciate until later in life. But it, it was um, it was emphatic, I suppose, win in the end the way we won the title and, and obviously beat Rovers in, at home in our own place as well. So it was um, it was it was a great year.
0: Well. I can think of no better note than, to uh, end on than that than uh, remembering our championship win against Shamrock Grovers in Oriel. Uh, I think that's uh, that's as positive a note as we'll get. Gary, I'd like to thank you for joining us and giving us your time and wish you all the best. And on behalf of all Dundalk FC fans, we can't wait till we get to see you again, be it streaming or otherwise. And hopefully, as soon as is possible, we'll be back on the terraces and in the stands again to see you and all the other players in the league back in action
1: absolutely thanks for having me it's been, oh. it's been very enjoyable I'll um, hopefully like you say hopefully we'll be back in, in some form in the near future
0: hey, cheers thank you very much and good luck to all the lads oh, look, the face of football La, na, 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 na. the face of football